This, uh, this morning, we're going to begin a, a look at the book of Philippians, uh, another book that uh, Paul wrote uh, of the many that he wrote in the New Testament that help give us guidance as a church uh, so many years later. And for some reason, as I thought about this weekend and I thought a bit about uh, how to begin Philippians, I thought about the relevance of the Christian message, the relevance of those things that we hold to be true. And to some extent, you might say the relevance of the Christian faith has always been questioned. It's been questioned and continues to be questioned from those outside the church who wonder about that message. Is it still relevant? Is it still real? Is it still powerful? And there are those who would question its relevance who would actually welcome its demise. That some who question the relevance of the Christian faith would like to simply see it go away. And they might even see that as a natural progression of man away from a notion of a personal, real, loving God towards simply self-reliance, self-dependence, man himself. For others, even within the broader church landscape, the question of relevance of those things that we believe has opened the door to question even the very fundamental aspects of faith that you and I would hold to be true. Things that we would see as non-negotiable in terms of our Christian faith, those things that we believe. The one true and living God. Jesus, the Son of God, divine yet human. Jesus, who rose from the dead. In some denominations across the Christian landscape, those things are debated. And I was on a website this last week of a a major denomination where they do not even necessarily profess those things to be true. Sometimes this debate about the relevance of God and the relevance of the Christian faith, sometimes it becomes quite heated and the voices can become quite loud and agitated. Those who take offense to the Christian faith because in terms of what we believe, in terms of ethics, in terms of morality, we seek to stand firm. There are things we simply hold to be true about God and about how God calls us to live that we simply affirm. That being relevant as a church does not mean accommodating or adapting to the shifting sands of culture around us. And there definitely are churches who are willing to do that. Who might say, in order to stay relevant, we've got to change with the shifting sands of culture. 
Sometimes this debate is, and probably most often this debate, I would say, is expressed in the silent witness of a world and a culture simply going its own way. Jesus said in Matthew that there is a way. In fact, some versions say it's a broad way. It's a broad path. That seems right or reasonable to man. And most people find themselves on that highway. There's also another way, Jesus said, that is a much narrower path. And he said not many people choose that path because it is hard. So there's an aspect about what we live out as children of God that includes a decision to say, I'm willing to walk a narrow, harder, more difficult path. In the Bible, it says one leads to death. One leads to destruction of many kinds. One leads to life, everlasting. This morning, I thought about that a little bit as I was driving, and many of us have taken trips where we've chosen the broad highway for a variety of reasons, the I-5 instead of some other option. But there's probably lots of us in here who have occasionally chosen a secondary highway. And we found that highway actually to be probably quite a bit narrower, even literally, We've probably found that path to have far fewer vehicles on it. And that narrow pathway, that narrow secondary highway, has probably changed our perspective on that journey. I know that that analogy ends up falling a bit flat because often you choose a narrow secondary highway but you sort of get to the same destination. Spiritually speaking, one does not lead to the same place as the other. But in a way, God is calling us, are you willing to walk through life kind of on a secondary highway? It'll give you a different perspective on who you are, on life, and the fact that it leads to life eternal. So I sometimes think if people are waiting for let's say, the majority to get on board with the Christian faith or the Christian perspective on life before choosing it, you will be disappointed. People prefer the path of least resistance. People, most people around us are willing to go with the flow that the world is taking. Matthew, it says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy. That leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. But the gateway to life is very narrow, and the road is difficult. And only a few ever find it.
We as children of God are swimming against the current. Which is why it's not an easy path to choose. However, I believe it's Christianity's resistance to that which exists around us that has the power to challenge people to consider God, to consider the notion of Jesus as Savior because it offers something entirely different than what the world has to offer. I think the conversation about the relevance of the Christian message is not something new. That when Paul entered Philippi in about 51 AD, Paul would not have faced an audience eager to embrace the gospel. The people of Philippi would not have said, this is super relevant. This is what we've been waiting for. This makes perfect sense to us. They would have been skeptical. Philippi was a Roman colony in Macedonia. It's an urban center. It was located on a major trading route. It's located very close to a very large gold mine. As a Roman colony, the people of Philippi enjoyed the rights and privileges of Roman citizens, the right to hold and buy and sell property, the right to due process in the courts of law, freedom from taxation. It was at that point the cutting edge of what it meant to be a Roman citizen outside the city of Rome. Sometimes it was referred to as Little Rome. And the people of Philippi did not live in a cultural or even a spiritual vacuum. They were surrounded by many gods who shaped how they understood life. And within the spiritual landscape of Paul's day, the notion of one supreme true God, a God above all gods, a God who was not the construct of human imagination, a God who was not something fashioned by human hands, would have been received with skepticism. Many would have dismissed Paul as being out of touch. Many would have dismissed the message as being irrelevant. That what you're talking about, Paul, does not make sense in terms of the culture of Philippi. We don't accept this notion of one true God. We don't accept this notion of Jesus, who you say was the Son of God and who rose from the dead. We are happy with the gods we've created. So I think the challenge facing Paul is not unlike the challenge we continue to face and the church continues to face, even though it's 2016. The notion of one true, supreme, almighty God a God who revealed himself in his son, Jesus Christ, who lived, 
died and rose again. This message still faces resistance. And while the culture of our day, you might say, doesn't embrace the notion of many gods, I would say our culture has determined that man himself and man's own understanding is all we really have to work with and really all that we need. And so the mystery of the gospel. Paul often referred to that message he spoke as the mystery of the gospel. Still faces resistance. And you might say it always resists the spiritual wisdom of the day. That what we believe confronts the culture and society in which we live. You might say, well, culturally much has changed since 51 AD, and that's true. But in terms of conversations about God, in terms of conversations about Jesus Christ and the notion of life everlasting, the message continues to be, I'll call it quietly, confrontative. And I think it's interesting to note that the many gods of the Greeks and the Romans have gone the same way as those civilizations. They are relegated to history books. They're relegated to Wikipedia. Their influence is a thing of the past. Yet God remains. The good news of Jesus Christ remains and continues to spread. The Philippian church was a church of very small beginnings. Very often it's referred to as the first church on European soil. Starting from essentially nothing. And if you know the story, it's not where Paul wanted to go. Paul had intentions to go in a different direction and in a dream, in a vision, he feels called to come to Macedonia. Even though there's really nothing there. Not even a synagogue where he can kind of set up shop. We know the story and Andy Hawthorne last Sunday spoke a bit about The beginning of the Philippian church, it's in Acts 16, if you want to read it more in detail. That the first who expressed faith was a wealthy businesswoman named Lydia and a jailer whose life was changed due to the exceptional witness of Paul and Silas. Two men who faced trumped up charges were beaten with rods placed in stocks inside a Roman prison. We know that story. And in prison, they chose to sing praises. In prison, they chose to pray. In prison, they proclaimed the goodness of God to anyone and any, everyone around them within that prison. And the miraculous story is told in Acts 16. And Paul and Silas prevented this jailer from taking his own life. 
that somehow even though prisoners had a way of escape by way of an earthquake, due to the influence of Paul and Silas, they chose to remain in prison. And so this jailer realizes that through the witness of Paul and Silas, men who, on this very narrow path, in the middle of trials and hard times, chose to give praise to God. And this jailer, his first question, this man who knows his life has just been saved, the first question he asks is, Sirs, how can I be saved? The jailer realizes that there is more going on around him than what is going on around him. And I thought about that this week. That realization that, oh my, there is something else going on around me other than my little world and its circumstances. That very question opens the door to consider the reality of God and the reality of things unseen. That when you ask that question, when people around us get to a place of asking that question, you are actually inviting God to open the eyes of your heart. That's what happened to the jailer. He knows he's just experienced something that cannot simply be explained away. And I think that is still what happens in people's hearts today. Those people we might meet or be in contact with who we would love to see embrace the kingdom of God. To even get them to the point of considering. There's more going on around me than what is going on around me. To the jailer, Paul and Silas at first would have seemed to be ordinary men like himself. Yet he knew they were part of something absolutely extraordinary. And the question the jailer asked of them is really, what do I need to do to have what you have? What is that? And the answer is, sounds in a way like such a simplistic answer that Paul gives. He says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That that narrow pathway that we walk as children of God leads to life eternal. And that's the humble beginnings of the Philippian church. A wealthy businesswoman and her household who came to believe. A jailer and his household who also came to believe. You might say those two families were the nucleus of the Philippian church. Sounds pretty small and insignificant. How long Paul and Silas stayed in Philippi is not known. In Acts 16, it says they stayed for some days. 
They end up leaving Philippi, if you know the story, almost as a favor to those judges and magistrates who realize that they have just unfairly, unjustly beaten and imprisoned Roman citizens. So the magistrates are feeling a little bit uncomfortable with having them there, and it's almost as a favor that Paul and Silas agree to get out of town. Ten years later, Paul writes this letter to the Philippian church. And once again, it's interesting, Paul writes this letter, we believe, again from prison. Now, once again, God has called Paul to a ministry that includes an incredible amount of pain and suffering. But he's writing to this church that he would have started 10 years earlier. And it's a group of people he loves dearly. But he does not write to a dying church. He doesn't write to a church that is struggling, he is writing to a church that appears to have experienced growth. And he says in Philippians 1 verse 1, I am writing to all of God's holy people in Philippi who belong to Christ Jesus, including the elders and deacons. When I read that verse, it seems to indicate to me that other people have obviously embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ through the witness of Lydia and the people that she maybe is in contact with through the witness of the jailer. So I'm thinking as this letter arrives at the Philippian church, it's very possible that Lydia and her house, that the jailer and his household are listening and sitting intently as this letter was read. And in a very real way, this letter from Paul to the people at Philippi has a very personal, heartfelt quality to it. Some of those people who would be listening would be saddened by the fact that Paul once again is in prison. But they would have likely smiled when Paul says this in his letter. Philippians 1, roughly 3 to 7. Paul talking to the church, I thank my God every time I remember you. Whenever I pray, I make my request for all of you with joy. So it is right that I should feel as I do about all of you, for you have a special place in my heart. You share with me the special favor of God, both in my imprisonment and in defending and confirming the truth of the good news. So it's kind of Paul saying, whenever I think of you, it puts a smile on my face, and it puts joy in my heart. And I thought about that in terms of what impression do I leave on people around me? What impression do we as a church leave on people around us that in a very real way, every day, you and I, throughout the week, we as a church 
are living out our spiritual, I'll call it our spiritual legacy. We live it out in the context of the workplace. We live it out in the context of our homes and our families. And I, I love the fact that we recognize those children, those grads this morning, and their homes, and the church. We live it out in the context of the church. What does that legacy look like in my life? What does that legacy look like within the life of Creekside Church? Paul affirms this group, this family of believers, because in spite of his departure, the church has maintained a sense of mission. It has survived without Paul and Silas. Perhaps it has even thrived without Paul and Silas. It's clear that new leaders have emerged in the Philippian church, and Paul reminds that church that God is at work in his church accomplishing his purposes. He says in verse 6 that God who has begun this good work in you, and sometimes we refer to that on a very personal level, about our own salvation, that it's something that God has begun in your heart, in your life. But it's also, I think, in the context of this letter, Paul saying to the church, what God has begun in you at Creekside is a good thing, and he will accomplish it. He will bring it to his own end. The God who has begun this good work in you and me will continue to do so until Jesus returns. The God who has begun a good work in Creekside will continue to do so until Jesus returns. Paul says to this church, keep believing, keep up the good fight. In Philippians 2, verse 12 and 13, he says this, and we'll talk about this more later. He says to them, work hard to show the results of your salvation, obeying God with deep reverence and fear. For God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. And I can read those verses and ask, so is it me and my working hard, or is it God who is at work and I, in a way that I will admit I do not fully understand and certainly do not control, the answer is both. There is an aspect of our salvation that God calls us to work out. And there is an aspect about my salvation that God is working out in me. I actually like both of those things. So this morning, I encourage us to see ourselves as a church on mission. To see ourselves as something, part of something greater than ourselves. And we can rest assured that God is accomplishing his purposes through his church. Through his people, through you, through me. And we are called to live it out. The gospel of Jesus Christ is as relevant and I believe as powerful as ever 
And that to all who believe, it has the power of salvation. It has the gift of life eternal through Jesus Christ our Lord. Our mission is to invite people to consider that. Even for a moment to consider, so what if there is more going on than simply going through what I go through every day? But swimming upstream is difficult. There are aspects of how we are called to live, of what we believe, that are not easy. And at times I think about that, how easy it would just be to step from these things on this narrow path into the broad highway that everyone else is on. And I believe that within the church of God, the Spirit of God is what continues to draw us to the truth of God himself and the message of salvation through Jesus Christ. And I think the church is absolutely critical to that mission. And I want to end by just reading a few verses, the last verse uh, from about verses 8 to 11 in Philippians. It's a prayer for Paul for this Philippian church that he founded 10 years ago. He says, I pray that your love will overflow more and more. It's, not, it's funny, he doesn't ask about something like super whatever. He says, I pray that your love will overflow more and more and that you will keep on growing in knowledge and understanding. For I want you to understand what really matters so that you may live pure and blameless lives until the day of Christ's return. May you always be filled with the fruit of your salvation. And there's lots of conversation in Paul's letters about what that fruit looks like. And it's all good. And the righteous character produced in your life by Jesus Christ. For this will bring much glory and praise to God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this encouragement. Father, I thank you that the church, Father, is yours. That, Father, we live and have our being because, Father, you saw fit to call us to yourself and to establish the church as your people. Father, we know in so many ways that we do walk a path that's different. We do walk a path that is narrow. We do walk a path, Heavenly Father, that says yes to things unseen. We walk a path, Father, that proclaims you as Almighty God. Father, would you breathe by the Holy Spirit those truths into our hearts and into our minds. Remind us, God, that the path we are on leads to life, and it leads to life everlasting. And for that, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.